This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London right now. The Sea Wolf by Jack London, Chapter 36. For two days, Maud and I ranged the sea and explored the beaches in search of the missing masts. But it was not till the third day that we found them, all of them, the shears included, and of all perilous places in the pounding surf of the grim southwestern promontory. And how we worked. At the dark end of the first day, we returned exhausted to our little cove, towing the mainmast behind us, and we had been compelled to row in a dead calm practically every inch of the way. Another day of heartbreaking and dangerous toil saw us in camp with the two topmasts to the good. The day following, I was desperate, and I rafted together the foremast the fore and main booms, and the fore and main gaffs. 
the wind was favorable, and I had thought to tow them back under sail. But the wind baffled and died away, and our progress with the oars was a snail's pace. And it was such dispiriting effort to throw one's whole strength and weight on the oars and to feel the boat checked in its forward lunge by the heavy drag behind was not exactly exhilarating. Night began to fall, and to make matters worse, the wind sprang up ahead. Not only did all forward motion cease, but we began to drift back and out to sea. I struggled at the oars till I was played out. Poor Maud, whom I could never prevent from working to the limit of her strength, lay weakly back in the stern sheets. I could row no more. My bruised and swollen hands could no longer close on the oar handles. My wrists and arms ached intolerably, and though I had eaten heartily of a twelve o'clock lunch, I had worked so hard that I was faint from hunger. I pulled in the oars and bent forward to the line which held the tow. But Maud's hand leaped out restrainingly to mine. "'What are you going to do?' she asked in a strained, tense voice. "'Cast it off,' I answered, slipping a turn of the rope. But her fingers closed on mine. "'Please don't,' she begged. "'It is useless,' I answered. "'Here is night and the wind blowing us off the land. "'But think, Humphrey, if we cannot sail away on the ghost.' We may remain for years on the island, for life even. If it has never been discovered all these years, it may never be discovered. You forget the boat we found on the beach, I reminded her. It was a seal hunting boat, she replied. And you know perfectly well that if the men had escaped, they would have been back to make their fortunes from the rookery. You know they never escaped. I remained silent undecided. Besides, she added haltingly, it's your idea and I want to see you succeed. Now I could harden my heart. As soon as she put it on a flattering personal basis, generosity compelled me to deny her. Better years on the island than to die tonight or tomorrow or the next day in the open boat. We are not prepared to brave the sea. We have no food, no water, no blankets, nothing. Why, you'd not survive the night without blankets. I know how strong you are. You are shivering now. It is only nervousness, she answered. I am afraid you will cast off the masts in spite of me. Oh, please, please, Humphrey, don't, she burst out a moment later. And so it ended with the phrase she knew had all power over me. We shivered miserably throughout the night. Now and again I fitfully slept, but the pain of the cold always aroused me. How Maud could stand it was beyond me. I was too tired to thrash my arms about and warm myself, but I found strength time and again to chafe her hands and feet to restore the circulation. And still she pleaded with me not to cast off the masts. About three in the morning she was caught by a cold cramp, and after I had rubbed her out of that she became quite numb. I was frightened. I got out the oars and made her row, though she was so weak I thought she would faint at every stroke. Morning broke, and we looked long in the growing light for our island. At last it showed small and black on the horizon, fully fifteen miles away. 
I scanned the sea with my glasses. Far away in the southwest, I could see a dark line on the water, which grew even as I looked at it. Fair wind, I cried in a husky voice I did not recognize as my own. Maud tried to reply, but could not speak. Her lips were blue with cold, and she was hollow-eyed. But oh, how bravely her brown eyes looked at me, how piteously brave. Again I fell to chafing her hands and to moving her arms up and down and about until she could thrash them herself. Then I compelled her to stand up, and though she would have fallen had I not supported her, I forced her to walk back and forth the several steps between the thwart and the stern sheets, and finally to spring up and down. Oh, you brave, brave woman, I said when I saw the life coming back into her face. Did you know that you were brave? I never used to be, she answered. I was never brave till I knew you. It is you who have made me brave. Nor I until I knew you, I answered. She gave me a quick look, and again I caught that dancing, tremulous light and something more in her eyes. But it was only for the moment. Then she smiled. It must have been the conditions, she said, but I knew she was wrong, and I wondered if she likewise knew. Then the wind came fair and fresh, and the boat was soon laboring through a heavy sea toward the island. At half-past three in the afternoon, we passed the southwestern promontory. Not only were we hungry, but we were now suffering from thirst. Our lips were dry and cracked, nor could we longer moisten them with our tongues. Then the wind slowly died down. By night it was dead calm, and I was toiling once more at the oars, but weakly, most weakly. At two in the morning the boat's bow touched the beach of our own inner cove, and I staggered out to make the painter fast. Maud could not stand, nor had I strength to carry her. I fell in the sand with her, and when I had recovered, contented myself with putting my hands under her shoulders and dragging her up the beach to the hut. The next day we did no work. In fact, we slept till three in the afternoon, or at least I did, for I awoke to find Maud cooking dinner. Her power of recuperation was wonderful. There was something tenacious about that lily-frail body of hers, a clutch on existence which one could not reconcile with its patent weakness. You know I was traveling to Japan for my health, she said, as we lingered at the fire after dinner and delighted in the movelessness of loafing. I was not very strong. I never was. The doctors recommended a sea voyage, and I chose the longest. You little knew what you were choosing, I laughed. But I shall be a different woman for the experience, as well as a stronger woman, she answered, and I hope a better woman. At least I shall understand a great deal more of life. Then, as the short day waned, we fell to discussing Wolf Larsen's blindness. It was inexplicable. And that it was grave, I instanced his statement that he intended to stay and die on Endeavor Island. When he, strong man that he was, loving life as he did, accepted his death, it was plain that he was troubled by something more than mere blindness. There had been his terrific headaches, 
and we were agreed that it was some sort of brain breakdown, and that in his attacks he endured pain beyond our comprehension. I noticed as we talked over his condition that Maud's sympathy went out to him more and more, yet I could not but love her for it, so sweetly womanly was it. Besides, there was no false sentiment about her feeling. She was agreed that the most rigorous treatment was necessary if we were to escape, though she recoiled at the suggestion that I might sometime be compelled to take his life to save my own. Our own, she put it. In the morning we had breakfast and were at work by daylight. I found a light kedge anchor in the forehold where such things were kept, and with a deal of exertion got it on deck and into the boat. With a long running line coiled down in the stern, I rowed well out into our little cove and dropped the anchor into the water. There was no wind, the tide was high, and the schooner floated. Casting off the shorelines, I kedged her out by main strength, the windlass being broken, till she rode nearly up and down to the small anchor, too small to hold her in any breeze. So I lowered the big starboard anchor, giving plenty of slack, and by afternoon I was at work on the windlass. Three days I worked on that windlass. Least of all things was I a mechanic, and in that time I accomplished what an ordinary machinist would have done in as many hours. I had to learn my tools to begin with and every simple mechanical principle which such a man would have had at his finger ends I had likewise to learn, and at the end of three days I had a windlass which worked clumsily. It never gave the satisfaction the old windlass had given, but it worked and made my work possible. In half a day I got the two topmasts aboard and the shears rigged and guyed as before, and that night I slept on board and on deck beside my Maud, who refused to stay alone ashore, slept in the forecastle. Wolf Larsen had sat about listening to my repairing the windlass and talking with Maud and me upon indifferent subjects. No reference was made on either side to the destruction of the shears, nor did he say anything further about my leaving his ship alone. But still I had feared him, blind and helpless and listening, always listening and I never let his strong arms get within reach of me while I worked. On this night, sleeping under my beloved shears, I was aroused by his footsteps on the deck. It was a starlight night, and I could see the bulk of him dimly as he moved about. I rolled out of my blankets and crept noiselessly after him in my stocking feet. He had armed himself with a draw knife from the tool lock and with this he prepared to cut across the throat halyards I had again rigged to the shears. He felt the halyards with his hands and discovered that I had not made them fast. This would not do for a draw knife, so he laid hold of the running part, hove taut, and made fast. Then he prepared to saw across with the draw knife. I wouldn't if I were you, I said quietly. He heard the click of my pistol and laughed. <laughs> Hello, Hump, he said. I knew you were here all the time. You can't fool my ears. That's a lie, Wolf Larsen, I said, just as quietly as before. However, 
I am aching for a chance to kill you, so go ahead and cut. You have the chance always, he sneered. Go ahead and cut, I threatened ominously. <laughs> I'd rather disappoint you, he laughed, and turned on his heels and went aft. Something must be done, Humphrey, Maud said next morning, when I had told her of the night's occurrence. If he has liberty, he may do anything. He may sink the vessel, or set fire to it. There is no telling what he may do. We must make him a prisoner. But how? I asked with a helpless shrug. I dare not come within reach of his arms, and he knows that so long as his resistance is passive, I cannot shoot him. There must be some way, she contended. Let me think. There is one way, I said grimly. She waited. I picked up a seal club. It won't kill him, I said, and before he could recover, I'd have him bound hard and fast. She shook her head with a shudder. No, not that. There must be some less brutal way. Let us wait. But we did not have to wait long and the problem solved itself. In the morning, after several trials, I found the point of balance in the foremast and attached my hoisting tackle a few feet above it. Maud held the turn on the windlass and coiled down while I heaved. Had the windlass been in order, it would not have been so difficult. As it was, I was compelled to apply all my weight and strength to every inch of the heaving. I had to rest frequently. In truth, my spells of resting were longer than those of working. Maud even contrived at times when all my efforts could not budge the windlass to hold the turn with one hand and with the other to throw the weight of her slim body to my assistance. At the end of an hour, the single and double blocks came together at the top of the shears. I could hoist no more. And yet the mast was not swung entirely inboard. The butt rested against the outside of the port rail, while the top of the mast overhung the water far beyond the starboard rail. My shears were too short. All my work had been for nothing. But I no longer despaired in the old way. I was acquiring more confidence in myself and more confidence in the possibilities of windlasses, shears, and hoisting tackles. There was a way in which it could be done, and it remained for me to find that way. While I was considering the problem, Wolf Larsen came on deck. We noticed something strange about him at once. The indecisiveness or feebleness of his movements was more pronounced. His walk was actually tottery as he came down the port side of the cabin. At the break of the poop, he reeled raised one hand to his eyes with a familiar brushing gesture and fell down the steps, still on his feet, to the main deck, across which he staggered, falling and flinging out his arms for support. He regained his balance by the steerage companionway and stood there dizzily for a space, when he suddenly crumpled up and collapsed, his legs bending under him as he sank to the deck. One of his attacks, I whispered to Maud. She nodded her head, and I could see sympathy warm in eyes. We went up to him, but he seemed unconscious, breathing spasmodically. She took charge of him, lifting his head to keep the blood out of it, and dispatching me to the cabin for a pillow. I also brought blankets, and we made him comfortable. 
I took his pulse. It beat steadily and strong and was quite normal. This puzzled me. I became suspicious. What if he should be feigning this? I asked, still holding his wrist. Maud shook her head, and there was reproof in her eyes. But just then, the wrist I held leaped from my hand, and the hand clasped like a steel trap about my wrist. I cried aloud in awful fear, a wild, inarticulate cry, and I caught one glimpse of his face, malignant and triumphant, as his other hand compassed my body and I was drawn down to him in a terrible grip. My wrist was released, but his other arm, passed around my back, held both my arms so that I could not move. His free hand went to my throat, and in that moment I knew the bitterest foretaste of death earned by one's own idiocy. Why had I trusted myself within reach of those terrible arms? I could feel other hands at my throat. They were Maud's hands, striving vainly to tear loose the hand that was throttling me. She gave it up, and I heard her scream in a way that cut me to the soul, for it was a woman's scream of fear and heartbreaking despair. I had heard it before, during the sinking of the Martinez. My face was against his chest and I could not see. But I heard Maud turn and run swiftly away along the deck. Everything was happening quickly. I had not yet had a glimmering of unconsciousness, and it seemed that an interminable period of time was lapsing before I heard her feet flying back. And just then I felt the whole man sink under me. The breath was leaving his lungs and his chest was collapsing under my weight. Whether it was merely the expelled breath, or his consciousness of his growing impotence, I know not, but his throat vibrated with a deep groan. The hand at my throat relaxed. I breathed. It fluttered and tightened again. But even his tremendous will could not overcome the dissolution that assailed it. That will of his was breaking down. He was fainting. Maud's footsteps were very near as his hand fluttered for the last time and my throat was released. I rolled off and over to the deck on my back, gasping and blinking in the sunshine. Maud was pale but composed. My eyes had gone instantly to her face, and she was looking at me with mingled alarm and relief. A heavy seal club in her hand caught my eyes, and at that moment she followed my gaze down to it. The club dropped from her hand as though it had suddenly stung her, and at the same moment my heart surged with a great joy. Truly she was my woman, my mate-woman, fighting with me and for me as the mate of a caveman would have fought, all the primitive in her aroused, forgetful of her culture, hard under the softening civilization of the only life she had ever known. Dear woman, I cried, scrambling to my feet. The next moment she was in my arms, weeping convulsively on my shoulder while I clasped her close. I looked down at the brown glory of her hair, glinting gems in the sunshine, far more precious to me than those in the treasure chest of kings, and I bent my head and kissed her hair softly, so softly that she did not know. 
Then sober thought came to me. After all, she was only a woman crying her relief now that the danger was past in the arms of her protector or of the one who had been endangered. Had I been father or brother, the situation would have been no wise different. Besides, time and place were not meet, and I wished to earn a better right to declare my love. So once again, I softly kissed her hair as I felt her receding from my clasp. It was a real attack this time, I said. Another shock like the one that made him blind. He feigned at first, and in doing so, brought it on. Maud was already rearranging his pillow. No, I said, not yet. Now that I have him helpless, helpless he shall remain. From this day, we live in the cabin. Wolf Larsen shall live in the steerage. I caught him under the shoulders and dragged him to the companionway. At my direction, Maud fetched a rope. Placing this under his shoulders, I balanced him across the threshold and lowered him down the steps to the floor. I could not lift him directly into a bunk, but with Maud's help I lifted first his shoulders and head, then his body, balanced him across the edge, and rolled him into a lower bunk. But this was not to be all. I recollected the handcuffs in his stateroom, which he preferred to use on sailors instead of the ancient and clumsy ship irons. So when we left him, he lay handcuffed, hand and foot. For the first time in many days, I breathed freely. I felt strangely light as I came on deck, as though a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I felt also that Maud and I had drawn more closely together, and I wondered if she too felt it as we walked along the deck side by side to where the stalled foremast hung in the shears. End of chapter 36 The Sea Wolf by Jack London, Chapter 37 At once we moved aboard the Ghost, occupying our old staterooms and cooking in the galley. The imprisonment of Wolf Larsen had happened most opportunely, for what must have been the Indian summer of this high latitude was gone, and drizzling, stormy weather had set in. We were very comfortable and the inadequate shears, with the foremast suspended from them, gave a business-like air to the schooner and a promise of departure. And, now that we had Wolf Larsen in irons, how little did we need it. Like his first attack, his second had been accompanied by serious disablement. Maud made the discovery in the afternoon while trying to give him nourishment. He had shown signs of consciousness, and she had spoken to him, eliciting no response. He was lying on his left side at the time, and in evident pain. With a restless movement, he rolled his head around, clearing his left ear from the pillow against which it had been pressed. At once he heard an answer her, and at once she came to me. Pressing the pillow against his left ear, I asked him if he heard me, but he gave no sign. Removing the pillow and repeating a question, he answered promptly that he did. Do you know that you are deaf in the right ear? I asked. Yes, he answered in a low, strong voice. And worse than that, my whole right side is affected. It seems asleep. I cannot move arm or leg. Feigning again, 
I demanded angrily. He shook his head, his stern mouth shaping the strangest twisted smile. It was indeed a twisted smile, for it was on the left side only, the facial muscles of the right side moving not at all. That was the last play of the wolf, he said. I am paralyzed. I shall never walk again. Oh, only on the other side, he added as though divining the suspicious glance I flung at his left leg the knee of which had just then drawn up and elevated the blankets. It's unfortunate, he continued. I'd like to have done for you first, Tom, and I thought I had that much left in me. But why, I asked, partly in horror, partly out of curiosity. Again his stern mouth framed the twisted smile, as he said, Oh, just to be alive, to be living and doing. To be the biggest bit of the ferment to the end, to eat you, but to die this way. He shrugged his shoulders, or attempted to shrug them rather, for the left shoulder alone moved. Like the smile, the shrug was twisted. But how can you account for it? I asked. Where is the seat of your trouble? The brain, he said at once. It was those cursed headaches brought it on. Symptoms, I said. He nodded his head. There is no accounting for it. I was never sick in my life. Something's gone wrong with my brain. A cancer, a tumor, or something of that nature. A thing that devours and destroys. It's attacking my nerve centers, eating them up bit by bit, cell by cell, from the pain. The motor centers too, I suggested. So it would seem. And the curse of it is that I must lie here conscious, mentally unimpaired, knowing that the lines are going down, breaking bit by bit communication with the world. I cannot see, hearing and feeling are leaving me. At this rate, I shall soon cease to speak. Yet all the time I shall be here, alive, active, and powerless. When you say you are here, I'd suggest the likelihood of the soul. I said. Bosh, was his retort. It simply means that in the attack on my brain, the higher psychical centers are untouched. I can remember, I can think and reason. When that goes, I go. I am not the soul. He broke out in mocking laughter, then turned his left ear to the pillow, as a sign that he wished no further conversation. Maud and I went about our work, oppressed by the fearful fate which had overtaken him. How fearful we were yet fully to realize. There was the awfulness of retribution about it. Our thoughts were deep and solemn, and we spoke to each other scarcely above whispers. You might remove the handcuffs, he said that night as we stood in consultation over him. It's dead safe. I'm a paralytic now. The next thing to watch out for is bed sores. He smiled his twisted smile, and Maud, her eyes wide with horror, was compelled to turn away her head. Do you know that your smile is crooked? I asked him, for I knew that she must attend him, and I wished to save her as much as possible. Then I shall smile no more, he said calmly. I thought something was wrong. My right cheek has been numb all day. Yes, and I've had warnings of this for the last three days, by spells. My right side seemed going to sleep, 
sometimes arm or hand, sometimes leg or foot. So, my smile is crooked, he queried a short while after. Well, consider henceforth that I smile internally with my soul, if you please, my soul. Consider that I am smiling now. And for the space of several minutes, he lay there quiet, indulging his grotesque fancy. The man of him was not changed. It was the old, indomitable, terrible Wolf Larsen, imprisoned somewhere within that flesh which had once been so invincible and splendid. Now it bound him with insentient fetters, walling his soul in darkness and silence, blocking it from the world which to him had been a riot of action. No more would he conjugate the verb to do in every mood and tense. To be was all that remained to him. To be, as he had defined death, without movement. To will, but not to execute. To think in reason and in the spirit of him, to be alive as ever, but in the flesh to be dead, quite dead. And yet, though I even removed the handcuffs, we could not adjust ourselves to his condition. Our minds revolted. To us, he was full of potentiality. We knew not what to expect of him next, what fearful thing, rising above the flesh, he might break out and do. Our experience warranted this state of mind, and we went about our work with anxiety always upon us. I had solved the problem which had arisen through the shortness of the shears. By means of the watch tackle, I had made a new one, I heaved the butt of the foremast across the rail and then lowered it to the deck. Next, by means of the shears, I hoisted the main boom on board. Its forty feet of length would supply the height necessary properly to swing the mast. By means of a secondary tackle I had attached to the shears, I swung the boom to a nearly perpendicular position, then lowered the butt to the deck where, to prevent slipping, I spiked great cleats around it. The single block of my original shears tackle I had attached to the end of the boom. Thus, by carrying this tackle to the windlass, I could raise and lower the end of the boom at will, the butt always remaining stationary, and by means of guys, I could swing the boom from side to side. To the end of the boom I had likewise rigged a hoisting tackle, and when the whole arrangement was completed, I could not but be startled by the power and latitude it gave me. Of course, two days' work was required for the accomplishment of this part of my task, and it was not till the morning of the third day that I swung the foremast from the deck and proceeded to square its butt to fit the step. Here I was especially awkward. I sawed and chopped and chiseled the weathered wood till it had the appearance of having been gnawed by some gigantic mouse. But it fitted. It will work. I know it will work, I cried. Do you know Dr. Jordan's final test of truth? Maud asked. I shook my head and paused in the act of dislodging the shavings which had drifted down my neck. Can we make it work? Can we trust our lives to it? is the test. He is a favorite of yours, I said. When I dismantled my old pantheon and cast out Napoleon and Caesar and their fellows, I straightway erected a new pantheon, she answered gravely. 
and the first I installed as Dr. Jordan. A modern hero. And a greater because modern, she added. How can the old world heroes compare with ours? I shook my head. We were too much alike in many things for argument. Our points of view and outlook on life, at least, were very alike. For a pair of critics, we agree famously, I laughed. And as shipwright and able assistant, she laughed back. But there was little time for laughter in those days. What of our heavy work and of the awfulness of Wolf Larsen's living death? He had received another stroke. He had lost his voice, or he was losing it. He had only intermittent use of it. As he phrased it, the wires were like the stock market, now up, now down. Occasionally the wires were up and he spoke as well as ever, though slowly and heavily. Then speech would suddenly desert him, in the middle of a sentence perhaps, and for hours sometimes we would wait for the connection to be re-established. He complained of great pain in his head, and it was during this period that he arranged a system of communication against the time when speech should leave him altogether. One pressure of the hand for yes, two for no. It was well that it was arranged, for by evening his voice had gone from him. By hand pressures after that he answered our questions, and when he wished to speak, he scrawled his thoughts with his left hand, quite legibly, on a sheet of paper. The fierce winter had now descended upon us. Gale followed gale with snow and sleet and rain. The seals had started on their great southern migration, and the rookery was practically deserted. I worked feverishly. In spite of the bad weather and of the wind, which especially hindered me, I was on deck from daylight till dark and making substantial progress. I profited by my lesson learned through raising the shears and then climbing them to attach the guys. To the top of the foremast, which was just lifted conveniently from the deck, I attached the rigging, stays, and throat and peak halyards. As usual, I had underrated the amount of work involved in this portion of the task, and two long days were necessary to complete it. And there was so much yet to be done. The sails, for instance which practically had to be made over. While I toiled at rigging the foremast, Maud sewed on canvas, ready always to drop everything and come to my assistance when more hands than two were required. The canvas was heavy and hard, and she sewed with the regular sailor's palm and three-cornered sail needle. Her hands were soon sadly blistered, but she struggled bravely on, and in addition, doing the cooking, and taking care of the sick man. A fig for superstition, I said on Friday morning. That mast goes in today. Everything was ready for the attempt. Carrying the boom tackle to the windlass, I hoisted the mast nearly clear of the deck. Making this tackle fast, I took to the windlass the shears tackle, which was connected with the end of the boom, and with a few turns had the mast perpendicular and clear. Maud clapped her hands the instant she was relieved from holding the turn, crying, It works! It works! We'll trust our lives to it! Then she assumed a rueful expression. It's not over the hole, she added. Will you have to begin all over? I smiled in superior fashion 
and, slacking off on one of the boom guys and taking in on the other, swung the mast perfectly in the center of the deck. Still, it was not over the hole. Again the rueful expression came on her face, and again I smiled in a superior way. Slacking away on the boom tackle and hoisting an equivalent amount on the shears tackle, I brought the butt of the mast into position directly over the hole in the deck. Then I gave Maud careful instructions for lowering away and went into the hole to the step on the schooner's bottom. I called to her and the mast moved easily and accurately, straight toward the square hole of the step the square butt descended, but as it descended it slowly twisted, so that square would not fit into square. But I had not even a moment's indecision. Calling to Maud to cease lowering, I went on deck and made the watch tackle fast to the mast with a rolling hitch. I left Maud to pull on it while I went below. By the light of the lantern, I saw the butt twist slowly around till its sides coincided with the sides of the step. Maud made fast and returned to the windlass. Slowly the butt descended the several intervening inches, at the same time slightly twisting again. Again Maud rectified the twist with the watch tackle, and again she lowered away from the windlass. Square fitted into square. The mast was stepped. I raised a shout, and she ran down to sea. In the yellow lantern light we peered at what we had accomplished. We looked at each other, and our hands felt their way and clasped. The eyes of both of us, I think, were moist with the joy of success. It was done so easily after all, I remarked. All the work was in the preparation. And all the wonder in the completion, Maud added. I can scarcely bring myself to realize that that great mast is really up and in, that you have lifted it from the water, swung it through the air, and deposited it here where it belongs. It is a titan's task. And they made themselves many inventions, I began merrily, then paused to sniff the air. I looked hastily at the lantern. It was not smoking. Again I sniffed. Something is burning, Maud said with sudden conviction. We sprang together for the ladder, but I raced past her to the deck. A dense volume of smoke was pouring out of the steerage companionway. The wolf is not yet dead. I muttered to myself as I sprang down through the smoke. It was so thick in the confined space that I was compelled to feel my way, and so potent was the spell of Wolf Larsen on my imagination, I was quite prepared for the helpless giant to grip my neck in a stranglehold. I hesitated, the desire to race back and up the steps to the deck almost overpowering me. Then I recollected Maud. The vision of her, as I had last seen her, in the lantern light of the schooner's hold, her brown eyes warm and moist with joy, flashed before me, and I knew that I could not go back. I was choking and suffocating by the time I reached Wolf Larsen's bunk. I reached my hand and felt for his. He was lying motionless, but moved slightly at the touch of my hand. I felt over and under his blankets. There was no warmth, no sign of fire. Yet that smoke which blinded me and made me cough and gasp must have a source. 
I lost my head temporarily and dashed frantically about the steerage. A collision with the table partially knocked the wind from my body and brought me to myself. I reasoned that a helpless man could start a fire only near to where he lay. I returned to Wolf Larsen's bunk. There I encountered Maud. How long she had been there in that suffocating atmosphere, I could not guess. Go up on deck, I commanded peremptorily. But Humphrey, she began to protest in a queer, husky voice. Please, please, I shouted at her harshly. She drew away obediently, and then I thought, what if she cannot find the steps? I started after her to stop at the foot of the companionway. Perhaps she had gone up. As I stood there hesitant, I heard her cry softly, Oh, Humphrey, I am lost. I found her fumbling at the wall of the after bulkhead, and, half leading her, half carrying her, I took her up the companionway. The pure air was like nectar. Maud was only faint and dizzy, and I left her lying on the deck when I took my second plunge below. The source of the smoke must be very close to Wolf Larsen. My mind was made up to this, and I went straight to his bunk. As I felt about among his blankets, something hot fell on the back of my hand. It burned me, and I jerked my hand away. Then I understood. Through the cracks in the bottom of the upper bunk, he had set fire to the mattress. He still retained sufficient use of his left arm to do this. The damp straw of the mattress, fired from beneath, and denied air, had been smoldering all the while. As I dragged the mattress out of the bunk, it seemed to disintegrate in midair, at the same time bursting into flames. I beat out the burning remnants of straw in the bunk, then made a dash for the deck for fresh air. Several buckets of water sufficed to put out the burning mattress in the middle of the steerage floor, and ten minutes later, when the smoke had fairly cleared, I allowed Maud to come below. Wolf Larsen was unconscious, but it was a matter of minutes for the fresh air to restore him. We were working over him, however, when he signed for paper and pencil. Pray do not interrupt me, he wrote. I am smiling. I am still a bit of the ferment, you see, he wrote a little later. I'm glad you are as small a bit as you are, I said. Thank you, he wrote. But just think of how much smaller I shall be before I die. And yet, I am all here, hump, he wrote with a final flourish. I can think more clearly than ever in my life before. Nothing to disturb me. Concentration is perfect. I am all here and more than here. It was like a message from the night of the grave, for this man's body had become his mausoleum. And there, in so strange a sepulcher, his spirit fluttered and lived. It would flutter and live till the last line of communication was broken. And after that, who was to say how much longer it might continue to flutter and live? End of chapter 37